0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Young Lee. Young is the president and CEO of the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. The New York-based foundation supports some of the best young scientists around the U.S. and gives them funds to pursue their bold and brave ideas. The grants it provides have launched careers, opened doors, and moved the field of cancer research forward in many ways over the decades. To give just one example, it bet on cancer immunotherapy research when that was considered a fringe concept in the 2000s, years before it became a mainstay part of everyday cancer treatment. Over its more than 75-year history, Damon Runyon has invested more than $430 million in almost 4,000 scientists. 13 have gone on to win the Nobel Prize, and 97 went on to be elected by peers into the National Academy of Sciences. Young is a scientist by training herself, and was a recipient of one of those prestigious Damon Runyon fellowships back when she was a postdoc. She later came to work at the organization, partly to help review scientific applications, and then worked her way up until becoming president and CEO in 2018. Listeners should know, I am a bit biased as I have started doing volunteer work for Damon Runyon this summer. I'm recruiting a team of about 20 biotech executives and investors for the Timmerman Traverse for Damon Runyon. We're gonna go to Mount Kilimanjaro in February of 2024. Our goal will be to raise $1 million for cancer research. I'm personally committing because I believe in the organization's mission and am impressed with its ability to execute on a national scale. You'll hear more about this expedition in the months ahead on Timmerman Report, but if you are interested in joining the Kilimanjaro team or sponsoring the team, please send me a note at luke at TimmermanReport.com. In this conversation, Jung talks about the philosophy of Damon Runyon, how it got started, some of its accomplishments, and a few of the challenges it sees in supporting young scientists. These are people who sometimes struggle to find their footing and establish their careers and this is something that Damon Runyon seeks to address. And now for a word from the sponsor of The Long Run, Occam Global. Occam Global is an international professional services firm focusing on executive recruitment, organizational development, and board construction. The firm's clientele emphasize intensely purposeful and broadly accomplished entrepreneurs and visionary investors in the life sciences. Occam Global augments such extraordinary and committed individuals in building high-performing executive teams and assembling appropriate governance structures. Occam serves such opportune sectors as gene cell therapy, neuroscience, gene editing, the intersection of AI and machine learning, and drug discovery and development. Connect with them at www.ockham-global.com slash longrun. Now please join me and Yong Lee on the long run. Young Lee, welcome to The Long Run.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So I'm really excited to have you with me today, Young. Um, I, I can't bury the lead as a journalist. I have to announce that uh, uh, I have a new partnership uh, just starting up with uh, the Damon Running Cancer Research Foundation that you are the head of. I'm very excited to um, lead this uh, next Kilimanjaro expedition uh, as a million dollar fundraiser for cancer research, uh, all around the country, uh, supporting terrific early career scientists doing some of the most creative work in, uh, in cancer research. Um, so, uh, I, I, we'll, we'll talk more about this as the uh, hour goes on, but, uh, uh, I, I just, uh, I, I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. And I, I think that the listeners will be too.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me join you today. And I want to start out by saying that we are absolutely thrilled about this new partnership, and very much look forward to working with you, Luke, and all of the participants of the Timmerman
0: Traverse. Excellent. All right, so let's start with a little bit about um, who you are and what, and what, we'll get into what you do. So, w- where do you come from originally, Young?
1: So I was born and raised in Wisconsin in a suburb outside of Milwaukee. My family is originally from Indonesia and my parents came to the United States in the late 1960s. Um I was born as I said in Wisconsin and am a true midwesterner. I've spent my the whole beginning part of my life there and graduated from high school from Brookfield East High School in well yeah
0: yeah, we have something in common. I'm uh, born and raised Wisconsinite as well, uh, although from the southwestern part of the state. Uh, so what um, what brought was it that brought your parents to um, the Milwaukee suburbs?
1: Well, so they um, left Indonesia at a time when the country was going through its independence struggles. Um, My father was actually trained as an anesthesiologist, and because of his training, he had an opportunity to do some of his fellowship training in San Francisco back in the 1950s. And then, after my parents got married, he was able to be sponsored by someone to come to the United States, and before. they lived in Wisconsin, they actually were in Columbia, Missouri. And so, as you can imagine, I think it was pretty striking to come from Jakarta, Indonesia to uh, Columbia, Missouri at that point in time. But um, they stayed in Missouri for about five years and then moved to Wisconsin, where my father uh, continued his career as an anesthesiologist in Milwaukee.
0: And what did your mom do?
1: So my mom was, um, you know, decided to take time and raise my sisters and I. Um, She actually was a translator back in Indonesia and worked for the for the embassy. And then she went on to teach um, some classes later on in her life. But her primary focus was just making sure that uh, my sisters and I had a great family and upbringing at home.
0: So how many siblings do you have?
1: I have two older sisters.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, and the uh, How did you first discover your interest in science? Your dad was an anesthesiologist, so I I guess you had some uh, medical talk around the the dining room table.
1: We did. We did. That um, certainly was where some of my interest began. But as you may know, Luke, you know, growing, um, growing up in Wisconsin, it was just an amazing place to be as far as the nature that surrounded us. And so I spent all of my free time outside, um, wandering around in the fields by my house and collecting insects and was always really fascinated by by nature and wanted to be outdoors all the time. So my dad really was my inspiration for my love of science. science. Um, As you mentioned, I was able to hear a lot about medicine and the practice of medicine as I was growing up. But my dad used to tell these stories about when he was training in Indonesia, and he actually did some research at that time and was... um, studying a toxin that was originally used by the indigenous people in Indonesia to hunt tigers. And it was always this really fascinating story that he would tell about how they were um, taking this toxin and seeing whether it was something that could be used as an anesthetic for either animals or humans. And, And I remember hearing those stories and being so fascinated by the idea of taking something that nobody really understood in being able to do those experiments and understand it, and so that's really where my interest and fascination in science came from.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. What about your um, your formal schooling? Did you go to public schools, private schools?
1: So I went to public schools um, and it was really interesting because I always loved science. I took, you know, science throughout high school, AP classes, you know, took labs and really enjoyed it. But at that time, I think I was thinking that, you know, as far as a career, I was more likely to choose pre-med as a, you know, as a as a major in college and pursue that route. But I think in part it was because I didn't really understand at that time what it would look like to have an actual career in research. And that came for me later on in my education where I made that realization. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you were sounds like a pretty good student taking the AP classes.
1: I did okay. <laughs> I <laughs> okay,
0: was a serious student. <laughs> well, um, where did you decide to go to college?
1: So for me, it was really important for me to uh, live in a different part of the country. I really enjoyed growing up in Wisconsin, but I felt like there were probably opportunities to go elsewhere that might Expand my horizons, and so I was really interested in going out to the West Coast, and I ended up doing my undergraduate at UC Berkeley.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. And what did you major in there?
1: I was a molecular biology major um, with an emphasis in genetics.
0: So you, you, did you think you were going to use this toward a pre med um, career, or at what point did you decide? Hey, I think I want to do bench science.
1: So I thought I was going to be pre-med initially. Um, Again, not really understanding fully what what that would even entail. Um, During my sophomore year, I had an opportunity to take a part-time job in a lab. And I didn't actually start out doing research, but I got this job um, helping to Basically, you know, support the technicians in a lab. And I was washing dishes, helping to prepare solutions, you know, not actually doing any experiments quite yet. And after a few months of that, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity uh, to actually start a research project. And I worked closely with a graduate student uh, in that lab. And my first really dabbling in the research side was in plant biology.
0: Mm-hmm. So this was while you were an undergrad. Yes. Um, you, you actually got into the lab and started thinking about experiments, asking questions.
1: Mm-hmm. And I loved it. It was an amazing experience.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How much time did you spend in the lab versus you know your traditional courses?
1: I was working as you know a part time part time in the lab. Um, again, starting my sophomore year, and then that expanded into a bit more time where I could actually enter into a structured research and senior thesis program. Um, by the time I got to my senior year, so. When I was not in my regular classes, I spent a lot of time in the lab. And since it was a plant biology lab, I got to do a lot of work in the greenhouses, which was a lot of fun for me.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you end up going to graduate school just down the road, Stanford. Um, uh, who do you root for in the big game, by the way? <laughs> I'm a Cal fan through and through. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, was this when you, how, how did you kind of move away from plants into other, other types of research questions?
1: So the process for me was really, you know, making that decision that I, that I enjoyed research and um, the, Aspect of discovery and being able to understand, potentially understand processes that people, um, you know, we knew nothing about yet was really uh, quite amazing. And that aspect of discovery was what I really, really loved. And so I made that decision to go to graduate school and, and obtain my PhD. And I started really looking closely at programs that had strong genetics and developmental biology programs and my interest was in again having an understanding of those very initial mechanisms that laid out the foundations for how we as humans or any living organisms are developed.
0: Mm -hmm. Basic questions how genes and cells work. This is what Mm -hmm. this is what animated you.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think part of it was, you know, you look at the complexity of everything, again, from a plant or an insect, you know, all the way up through humans. And it's quite amazing how frequently everything goes right. And there are so many genes and so many different steps in the process of development that could potentially go wrong. Yet, for the most part, they work very precisely. And so I was really interested in understanding that part of how 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 the world comes to be
0: and this was the 90s so the genomics was in the air uh we were sequencing and getting this code and figuring out what it meant um so it was kind of a heady time
1: yes it really was and you know when i look back and think about what we were able to learn at that time. And we were still just understanding, you know, the human genome. And uh, one of the things that I had the the good fortune to actually be involved in was that as I was a graduate student at Stanford, I had the opportunity to actually consult and be a part of annotating the human genome. Um, and that was pretty extraordinary. We now have so much information that that didn't exist at that time, and so remembering how important it is to have these, you know, efforts that led to being able to establish, you know, the number of genes that even exist in the human genome um, is something that has been extraordinary and has led to amazing advances.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you eventually made a switch I believe over into neurobiology and was that for your your postdoc?
1: Yes that was for my postdoc. Um when I was uh looking at labs to go to, I was actually really interested in neurobiology, but in particular was interested in the process of cell migration. How do cells move during the normal processes of early development um, to establish themselves in the right place to actually develop an organ? Um, And how do those processes potentially go awry in disease settings like cancer? Uh Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. And what years were you uh, doing this fundamental work?
1: So I started my postdoc in um, 2000 and worked initially at UCSF and uh, did my jumping around to different Bay Area institutions. And then I continued my postdoc in New York at the Rockefeller University until late 2007.
0: Okay, now what brought you over to Rockefeller?
1: So actually, um, there were a couple of things. Initially, my my husband got a job offer in New York, which was why I started looking to come to the East Coast. And I actually had a collaborator um, who was working at the Rockefeller, and she was studying the mammalian homolog of the gene that I was studying in C. elegans. And so it actually worked out to be this great opportunity to work in closer geographic you know actual physical proximity to my collaborator and i was fortunate enough to take my project with me when i came to new york and continue that work there
0: okay so you were doing all this basic research which um you know doesn't get a whole lot of the glory (laughs) or a lot of the headlines um in the wider world um but um is really where things tend to start. <laughs> uh, I, uh, what, what were you um, what were you thinking? where would this go? Were you thinking that you would become of you know a principal investigator someday like a lot of postdocs or what were you hoping to do long term?
1: I certainly started out my postdoc thinking that I would be on an academic career path and eventually have my own lab and be able to continue that work. What I found as I continued on in my postdoc was that while I enjoyed being able to do the the lab-based experimentation that I was doing, it was becoming, um, for me, it was feeling very narrow to be focused on one specific process and, you know, a small number of genes. And I was really thinking about ways in which I could potentially use my scientific training and expertise to have a broader impact.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So this is a pretty common phenomenon where people they go very deep <laughs> to the bottom of the ocean and where you write a paper that, uh, you know, 10 or 20 people can read and understand. <laughs> um, yes. And and then you realize, gosh, there's a whole wider world of science. Many people come to this point and, and they want to pop their heads up and look around at what other people are working on.
1: Absolutely. and. You know, the, the very deep work is incredibly important, so I certainly don't want to at all minimize that. But um, for me, that process of, of sticking my head back out and really looking around and seeing how to use that expertise and training in a different way was something that, that resonated for me.
0: Now, when did you receive your Damon Runyon Fellowship? And what did that enable you to do as a scientist?
1: I received my Damon Runyon Fellowship in 2000, and it was really an extraordinary moment for me to get that uh, notification and to find out that I'd been selected to receive this very prestigious postdoctoral fellowship. I had known other people during my graduate school years who were more senior than me and had received Damon Runyon awards. And I really looked up to those people and felt that they were those that were going to lead the forefront and, and really be the trailblazers of their fields. And so that was sort of the reputation that surrounded the Damon Runyon fellowships and the community of scientists that received those. And so for me, it was initially, you know, this really um, important, motivation and stamp of approval and a vote of confidence from the very you know esteemed community that selects these awards to find out that I'd been chosen, that they believed in me um, to be able to do this work. Um, so it was really very meaningful for me at that particular point in my career.
0: And what did it enable you to do? Did it give you certain kinds of freedom or flexibility? To uh, pursue questions that you, that that were your own, um, as opposed to the the PIs,
1: absolutely. So the one of the biggest um, advantages of having a Damon Runyon Fellowship was that I was able to go to my postdoctoral lab and to pursue my own ideas and a project that really didn't fit in quite as neatly to the rest of the projects that were ongoing in that lab at the time. And so having that freedom and the independence to pursue an idea that was a little riskier was what that fellowship enabled me to do.
0: Mm -hmm. And you got invited into a club, so to speak.
1: Yes. And it was really, you know, it's a, it's a very elite and prestigious club. And what I really benefited from, you know, from through that community was being able to attend in-person meetings and retreats and meet other recipients of the fellowship. And as well as some of the committee members who had actually selected me for this award and One of the things that I think is so important is the breadth of the science that's supported through Damon Runyon, because you're meeting people that are working in so many different fields and have different expertise. And I think that it's very important to, especially in science, to be able to learn from others and to think creatively about ways in which you might be able to collaborate or find complementary expertise that can enable you to ask scientific questions that you might not be able to do if you were working just on your own or with others that are experts in your exact same area of science.
0: So there was you, uh, you had your interest in cell migration, um, which um, is pretty, is basic. I mean, it's but cancer cells rely on some of these mechanisms too. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you, you found a fellowship here with, Other people who were working on basic questions of genes and cells, which happen to have practical applications for cancer, maybe someday down the road.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, you go into the into some of these research fields and questions, not thinking that you're going to be the one that's going to cure cancer, but if there are important findings that come out of the work that you're doing that is much more basic and fundamental, that ultimately can have an impact in the understanding of a disease like cancer or development of potential new therapies or earlier diagnosis. Um, That's an amazing way to contribute to science and to human
0: health. Okay, so you received the Damon Runyon Fellowship during your postdoctoral years. You, you went and did your work in the lab. And after, I guess, about seven years, you decided you're ready for something new. Um, and you ended up going to work, uh, actually, at Damon Runyon, which I think probably not yeah. very many of these fellows end up doing. Um, what, what was the, the job, the proposal? What What attracted you?
1: When I started looking at ways to use my scientific training in, in different ways outside of a, a research setting, one thing that really resonated to me was the idea of working in a medical um, or disease-related research foundation. And part of what appealed to me was the opportunity to be able to support scientists who were doing research, both in the laboratory as well as more translational work in the clinic. Um, I'd been in those, you know, I've been in that situation. I knew how difficult it was to be in the lab doing research and um, I really felt like I could contribute in an important way by supporting the work of the many scientists that are doing that important work. Um, and so I was really fortunate that at that time there was an opportunity at Damon Runyon. I knew about the organization already as um, ha- having been a fellow and having been a part of the organization previously. And so it really resonated to me Um to be able to come in as a scientist and to be on the other side and really support the the work of these amazing scientists. Um, So when I started, I came on as scientific director. I was the only scientist on the actual staff at Damon Runyon, but obviously we worked very closely with many scientists who serve on our selection committees and sit on our board of directors. And it was a great opportunity to, again, see what it was like on the other side. And I remember feeling like it was such a privilege to be able to see the applications of all these bright young scientists that were coming in and applying for our fellowships and our other awards, and to then be able to support them and to follow their science over the years and see how their careers then would progress as well.
0: Now, what was your actual job? Were you supposed to help uh, sort through and and vet these uh, proposals with the help of uh, those expert committees?
1: Yes, that was part of my job. And so I I worked very closely with the committees, um, sat in on those selection meetings, got to hear all of these amazing ideas from scientists. Um, I remember feeling like I was um, in that first selection meeting when I listened to the committee review proposals for the fellowship, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, how did I actually get one of these awards? and so the rigor in which they consider all of the proposals that are received and the thought that goes into selecting the scientists is quite extraordinary. And then once we would select scientists to receive a Damon Runyon Award, I was then the point of contact between the scientists and the foundation. And part of my role was to then build out that community, plan plan the fellows' retreats, and other symposia that we would hold and to create some of the connections between our scientists so that they could become collaborators in some cases.
0: Now, maybe at this point, we should back up just a bit for people who are not that familiar with the organization. Could you just say a little bit about Damon Running Cancer Research Foundation, how it got started and and what its uh, main accomplishments um, have been?
1: Sure. So the Damon Ryndam Cancer Research Foundation has a very long track record. Uh, the organization was started in 1946 and really was, you know, a, a a it was one of the first organizations to really call on the men and women of America to support cancer research. So Damon Runyon was an iconic sports writer and journalist, and he passed away from throat cancer. And his very good friend, Walter Winchell was a famous radio broadcaster, and he got on the radio after his good friend died of cancer, and he asked the men and women of America to give their spare change so that they could fight cancer. And Walter Winchell was really um, ahead of his time, I think, in many ways, because even At that time in the 1940s, he had identified that it was important to fund young scientists at critical points in their careers so that they could pursue promising big ideas and that they would be the ones that would then make progress against cancer. So that's where it all began. And our mission um, since the 1940s has been to really focus on young scientists, again, at these critical points in their careers and to provide them with the resources so that they could pursue high risk, high reward ideas. So essentially, our focus is on enabling them to again, pursue ideas that they might not otherwise be able to uh, focus their attention on at these early career points.
0: Occam is a global executive search firm focused on entrepreneurs and venture capital investors. Occam Global not only recruits CEOs and other C-suite leaders, but also plays a strategic and tactical role in building out optimal boards and advising on governance issues. Whether it be an executive chairman to provide leadership guidance for a first-time CEO or functional experts in R&D, business development, finance, or operations, Occam's broad-based network in life sciences provides a maximal number of potent options to their clients. Occam's board clients can be companies at the earliest stage, those preparing for a public offering, or public companies seeking to enhance an established board. Connect with them at www.ockham-global.com slash long run. So it had this, uh, grassroots base of citizen support. Um, this is, um, really in the very early days of cancer research, as we know it, the NIH was really just kind of getting going and, and becoming what it is today. Um, there were a few other um, community outreach efforts uh, in other parts of the country, but this um, this was one that really took and had some staying power. What were some of the um, kinds of ideas that um, this organization supported and helped catalyze over, I don't know, the last 75 years?
1: So there are quite a few, um, and I'll, you know, start by saying that over these, over the years since 1946, we've funded over 4,000 scientists and each of many of those scientists have made significant and important contributions to different areas of cancer research and so we have done you know a number of evaluations to take a look at the impact that our awards have had over the years and so you know we have scientists that we funded who initially proved the link between cigarette smoking and cancer uh they first cured a solid tumor with chemotherapy um there are scientists, you know, in more recent years who established the link between human papillomavirus and oral cancers. Um, and eventually this has led to the vaccine for HPV that prevents not only cervical cancers, but other cancers as well. um our scientists have had amazing impacts that have led to the approval of new targeted therapies as well as immunotherapies uh, in more recent years. And then we can also track our scientists to the development of some of the important biotech companies and specifically to approvals of, you know, certain drugs that are now used to cure cancer um, and treat cancer patients. So, it's quite extraordinary, um, and we're really quite proud of the many scientists that we've funded over the years and the impact that they've had.
0: Mm-hmm. It really seems to come back to that <clears throat> kind of simple philosophy of just finding the brightest early career scientists and giving them the freedom to explore their ideas rather than picking a spot specific technology or a specific tumor type and kind of trying to direct, I guess, from the top down.
1: Yes, that's that certainly has been our strategy, and we think that that's a strategy that works very well. One of the questions that people sometimes ask is whether we fund people or projects, and the answer is always both, because you have to make sure to invest in these brilliant young minds, but then also allow them the freedom and the independence to pursue their ideas. And what we recognize is that there will be times when the original hypothesis is wrong. And even by doing those experiments and finding out that the original hypothesis is wrong, we learn something and we want to support people that then as scientists are able to pivot, follow the science and ask new questions based on what they've learned.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's how science works. Yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. Um, okay, so you came to work in this organization 2008 as scientific director. Mm-hmm. And you got exposed to all these different kinds of uh, ideas and interesting people and projects that they were proposing. Um, what did you really learn how did this like change the way you thought about science and cancer research
1: i think that one of the most important things that i've learned over the years has been this idea of the importance of having people who are trained with expertise in many different areas and that they all need to think about some of these important questions together. So, you know, for us, what we do is support very basic research all the way through work that is more translational and moving to the clinic and having the community in place to be able to connect some of those basic researchers to those that are actually in the clinic and observing what happens in patients has been incredibly important uh, with respect to just how I think about the entire ecosystem of cancer research. Um, You know, as we already touched on, It's also incredibly important to continue to have that focus on basic science. And, you know, we continue to learn that the fundamental changes that occur in a cancer cell are going to be those that, you know, will have commonalities across different cancer types. And so not focusing specifically on one particular cancer is a strategy that we've had. And I think that it's proven to be one that um, is quite effective.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think um, when you come back to that basic science question, one of my favorite examples is uh, CRISPR. Um, It uh, now it's, Taken over the world of biology, um, and it's being applied in a million different ways. But uh, in the beginning, it was just fundamental, basic inquiry about well, what is this phenomenon, how does it work, why, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's led in all these directions. I mean, and, and at Damon Running, when I was looking at your organization and thinking about partnering, I, I saw you know an early bet on cancer immunotherapy um mm-hmm. the work of jed walchak and and others um and um that was bef- back when cancer immunotherapy was pretty basic um mm-hmm. or uh, certainly wasn't popular it wasn't the the fashionable thing <laughs> for right. everyone to want to work on or or pour a lot of resources into and so it, it comes back to that philosophy of fundamental inquiry and knowing that most of these these hypotheses, these ideas will will not um, translate, will not pan out, but we'll learn something from them. And eventually when they hit, they hit really big.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I actually have a couple of stories to share about both CRISPR as well as immunotherapy. Um, as you mentioned, I, I started working at Damon Runyon in 2008. And one of the first things that I did when I came on, Um, the team was to try to educate myself about some of the more translational and clinical work that we were supporting because I hadn't been exposed to that during my lab-based training as a graduate school, as a graduate student and and a postdoc. So One of the first people that I met with was Jed Walchuk because he was one of our current awardees um, at that time. And I remember going to visit him in his lab and he was explaining to me this whole concept of checkpoint inhibitors and how we could potentially manipulate our immune systems to respond to and attack the cancers in the body. And I was just fascinated because it was such a new idea at that time and to see how far we've come and to see that you know we're now able to um, use immunotherapy to treat so many cancer patients effectively is quite amazing. But again, there are still answers um, that we need to try to find with respect to how to better identify patients who will have the best chance of responding to immunotherapies. Um, so there's still work to do. But I do remember hearing about that work initially. And that was at a time when there were a lot of people within the scientific community who would have said, there's no way this is ever going to work in <laughs> patients, right? So um, I felt like it was, you know, this time when Damon Ronin was taking bets and um, pursuing some of these ideas that that didn't necessarily have a guarantee of working.
0: I remember those days well in the in the aughts, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this is why you say you, you fund bold and brave cancer immunotherapy yes. in those years was a bold and brave thing to fund.
1: It was. It was. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that we were able to make those bets and support some of the people that have become such amazing and important leaders in the field. Um, Similarly, with CRISPR, I remember being in a selection committee meeting where we were reviewing and making decisions regarding whether to fund um, an innovation award, a Damon Runyon-Rackliffe Innovation Award, um, to Feng Zhang, who's a name I'm sure many of the people within this community recognize as being one of the pioneers of CRISPR. And we did ultimately make the decision to fund him, thankfully. But I remember having a discussion and there were some committee members that said at the time, they're like, wow, if this actually works, it is going to revolutionize everything, not just cancer research, but research across all different fields. And fortunately we were able to place that bet and invest in the work that he and his laboratory were doing. And when you look at the applications and the proposals that come in today, they're literally, you know, I can't even think of, but a significant portion of them are using CRISPR in so many different applications, and it's enabling scientists to ask questions that may not have been even possible to address 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, so that's one of those grant uh, awards that you look back on and say, hmm, glad that we uh, <laughs> supported that bright young scientist, Feng Zhang. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so y- back to you. You spent about ten years there, um, working o- o- on all these these intimate things at Damon Runyon. You knew the instance the organization inside out. Um, I think you worked on something like five hundred and fifty uh, awards, um, worth a total of one hundred and forty million uh, of grants over. Decade, mm-hmm. and, and then um, th- you got the call to um, step up and become president and CEO of this organization in 2019. Can you talk a little bit about um, what that's si- what the situation was that um, you inherited at the time, and and what the board asked you and called you to do?
1: Sure. It was a time when I think we had been really thinking about ways in which we could expand our impact. Um, Our previous CEO had announced her retirement, and so I was very fortunate to um, receive that call from the board asking me to step into the leadership role of the organization. And I think for Damon Runyon, um, we've been very fortunate as an organization to be supported by leadership at the board level and with all of our scientific advisors, um, to always be challenged to try to find ways to expand out our programs and to find ways to fill gaps in funding that can better support young scientists working in different areas of cancer research. And so... um, I had been involved um, previously to uh, stepping into the leadership role in development of new programs and working with the scientific community and our board to find the best ways to expand out our programs and have the greatest impact. And so that really was the situation. Um, And I've been, you know, it's been, it's been pretty extraordinary to be at the helm of this amazing organization.
0: Well, so y- you were the first scientist to become the CEO of Damon Runyon, is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: Well, so c- can you say a little bit about, I mean, you seem like a pretty humble person, Young, <laughs> but what, what was it that you brought to the table here that um, that both you and the board thought could be really helpful in taking the organization to another level?
1: I think that much of it is, you know, comes down to being able to take a a broader view about ways that we can support our, all the, all of the scientists that have been so important to us as a community. And being strategic about uh, how we develop our structured award programs to do that, but then also working in partnership with the broader scientific community and also with our donors and board members. So Damon Runyon is a public charity and we fundraise to be able to support our programs and we also focus a lot of attention on building out partnerships not only with individual donors but also with other foundations as well as some corporate found, uh, partners in pharma and biotech and so i do think that you know part of what has been so important to the success of this organization has been able to take you know again that broader view and to be open to working in collaboration with others in order to be most effective about the work that we do in this space of funding cancer research.
0: Now, there had to be there. There were no questions about your your scientific qualifications, uh, your savvy uh, to take this job. But I wonder, did you feel like you needed to work on some things to be um, the public face of the organization. because um, th- this um, uh, e- I mean th- this is a big part of it. the fundraising, the the connections, um, d- um, and that's not something that people typically associate with basic scientists or or that comes naturally for a lot of people.
1: Right. Well, thank you for, for asking that question. There there are always more things to learn, um, regardless of, of what point you're at in your career. Um, and I think that the places where, you know, I continue to focus attention on are, you know, really, as chief fundraiser um, of the organization, um, that's something that's really, you know, critical for our continued success. And so, um, for me, it's really a focus on, again, paying very close attention to the different types of relationships that we have with different partners. Um, really focusing on being an advocate for not only the, the individual scientists that we fund, but also, you know, being an advocate and me reminding people how important it is to continue to focus attention on support and funding for not just cancer research, but basic research um, and scientific research across many different fields. And I think the communication piece is incredibly important. How do we explain to non-scientists what the impact is of the work that and the funding that goes into all different areas of research? So those are the areas that I think are incredibly important and where I continue to focus a lot of attention.
0: Mhm mhm- you know I, I think we've already talked a little bit about some of the positive impacts that can come from betting on young scientists when they have their um when they're product- often um very productive in their twenties thirties um but there's another side of this issue too <laughs> with young scientists in academia in particular uh, where and, and you know this stat very well, uh, but not everyone does, that the first time grant winner for an NIH R01 grant, a typical grant that people get from the federal government, is in the early 40s. And so we have this situation where a lot of these young scientists brimming with ideas, they spend an entire decade of their 30s um, really struggling to get established, uh, to to get the, the kind of funds they need to get their labs set up. And this happens to be at a time when people are making their, some of their biggest decisions in life, like where to live, um, who to marry, you know, whether to have kids, you know, buy a house. Um, it's very, very hard, um, for people to do a lot of these things with, with confidence. Um, when you know they're they're getting by on whatever graduate students or postdocs are able to make, so how, how do you see Damon Runyon fitting into this contextual backdrop and and doing something positive to um to help offset some of these these pressures?
1: Choosing a career as a research scientist is, you know, is something that does come with a lot of challenges. And we know that there are many financial disincentives that exist to choosing a, a career as a basic researcher or as a physician scientist. Um, so these are things that we really pay very close attention to. And we are always listening to our scientists to hear where they are, um, you know, where we can help to fill some of these gaps and alleviate some of the pressure. And so um, one of the things that has been very clear over the years is that postdoctoral researchers have historically been incredibly underpaid. You think about it, most people are on average spending, you know, Around six years to earn a PhD, and then they're asked to go on and do a postdoctoral research, um, you know, program that's going to be three to five more years. And as you mentioned, they're at points where they are brimming with these amazing ideas. They are at points in their life where they are wanting to make important family decisions and commitments, and it's incredibly challenging to live on those salaries. And so we, this year, as well as last year, have implemented increases in our postdoctoral stipend to help to offset some of those challenges. And so as of July 1st, we increased the starting stipend amount for our postdoctoral fellowship to $70,000. So that doesn't sound like a huge amount for someone who's actually undergone as much training and um, as many of our postdoctoral fellows have, but it actually is quite significant and it makes a big difference. Um, We also provide a a childcare allowance for our postdoctoral fellows and other scientists who have young children. Um, We are taking a look at how the COVID pandemic affected many scientists. And so during that time, we were interviewing, we were doing one-on-one interviews with our current awardees and listening to them and hearing where they were having challenges. And we ended up implementing an extension funding program that enabled our current awardees to have an additional six months of funding so that they could help to, it could help them to get through some of the challenges that they had faced. So those are just some examples of ways in which we're trying to address the gaps that are um, that exist in funding and to help our scientists to have the resources that they need so that they could focus their attention on the important scientific research that they're doing and not
0: now, when you some these other issues. When you say the stipend is $70,000, I mean, most people hear that and think that's probably not a lot if you're going to okay. live in Boston or New York or San Francisco or one of these other hubs of, of inquiry. Um, but it, a lot of these people, th- th- this isn't the only source of income that they have.
1: Uh, for the postdoctoral fellows, in many cases, unfortunately, it is. Um, for physician scientists, some of them will spend a fraction of their time also doing some clinical duties that will enable them to um, supplement their their salary. But okay. as you mentioned, it is pretty difficult to live on a, a salary of $70,000 in a place like Boston or New York or the Bay Area, um, many of the places where a lot of the, you know, big labs are
0: based. Okay, well, maybe this is why we still have more work to do.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I think that's right.
0: <laughs> but and it also partly explains why a, a lot of the awardees uh, do end up finding their way into careers in industry, uh, which can be very productive as well um, and helpful for patients. I mean, I just had Deb Palestrant on the long run a few episodes ago, and she's a former Dan- Damon Runyon grant recipient, um, has gone on to do really cool things in um startup companies and funding um bright, bright mm-hmm. um scientific entrepreneurs.
1: That is incredibly important work as well. And I think that um we do have some scientists who go on and choose those positions in research at, in industry, or they move on like Deb to the investment side and help to build uh, new companies. And I think that all of that work is incredibly important for the ecosystem. and and so we we view all of those, um all of those those, paths as success stories. And I think an important piece of this is ensuring that, you know, people that are working in the research labs are able to talk to those that are in the clinic and still have the connections to the ones that are working in industry and in venture capital so that we do have that kind of connection again across the entire ecosystem because that I think is important for continuing to make progress.
0: That connection to industry is something that you intentionally seek to foster. Um, And and it seems important to me because um, a lot of young scientists in academia, they they do not naturally have uh, a lot of those connections. Uh, But that's something that you can do um, as the convening organization.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's something that, you know, we've received a lot of really positive feedback about those opportunities from our scientists because it gives them also, it helps to educate them in understanding what it takes to move a laboratory based finding into even the process of, you know, considering translation and commercialization. And I think that, you know, in some cases, when they have a, a meeting that they attend in partnership with some of our industry scientists partners, um, it may not be something that is going to affect them at that moment, but at other points in their careers, it's important to have those connections in place and being able to find ways to foster those types of conversations is something that is incredibly important to us.
0: Last thing I want to ask you, Young, and this is kind of a big question, um, about cancer research itself. You know, as well as I, that we've seen really big strides here. Uh, The cancer death rate has been coming down um, over the last 30 years. Those five-year survival rates are coming up for a lot of different types of malignancies. Certainly not all, and there's tons of work to do. Um, But we've seen so much progress on things like targeted therapy, immunotherapy, early detection. Um, you've had a front row seat. I mean reviewing a lot of these amazing proposals for for many years. What are the things that you see coming up now across your desk? Uh, the, the ideas from these early career scientists that that really excites you uh, when you think about what we're going to accomplish in the next 20, 30 years?
1: I think it's so exciting to think about the amount of progress that has been made, but as you mentioned, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, in particular for some of the rarer cancer types and uh, for some of the cancers that might be a bit more resistant to treatment, um, either with targeted therapies or immunotherapy, um, as well as those for which we don't yet have a good understanding of the genetic um, underlying genetic components so that we can diagnose them earlier and have a better chance at treating patients. So I think one of the most exciting things is the application of some of the new technologies that are enabling us to look very closely at single cells, for example, in a cancer and understanding the very specific changes that can give rise to cancer progression or resistance to therapy and being able to identify those earlier. And so it all comes down to having a better understanding of cancer and its process and, and and progression so that we can be better about personalized medicine. We've been talking about personalized medicine for a long time, but we're not there yet. But I think that we are really poised to be able to apply both the basic the basic biology, as well as the technology to better be able to look at how cancers are actually being um, activated and progressing to more advanced disease. Um, I do think that it's really important for us, you know, and we have a focus now with one of our new awards on supporting scientists that have a more quantitative background in taking that expertise in say physics or math or computer science, and then applying it to important questions in cancer biology. And I think that that's where we're going to see a lot of additional progress. And so those technologies are going to give us a better understanding of cancer. And then that will ultimately lead to being able to identify the best treatment options for all patients.
0: Yeah, I think the technologies have really, there's been a confluence of things like sequencing and imaging and the computation to analyze large data sets, not even mentioning AI, but (laughs) there's there's a lot of things that have been emerging for a long time, 20, 30 years or longer, and and are coming together and equipping that modern lab. Um, I mean, it... it seems like a candy store for you know, bright young people who want to go to work. Um, they can ask and answer lots and lots of questions uh, it, um, that you couldn't, you couldn't even begin to approach before.
1: I absolutely agree with you. So I think we're at an extraordinary time where we have availability of all of these different technologies that can then be applied collectively to start addressing these really, really important questions. So I'm excited about seeing what comes out of all of it in these coming years.
0: All right. Well, we support... uh... The young people who will help uh, lead the way, uh, you know, maybe we can have a follow-up conversation in 20 years and see what uh, what came of this. <laughs> um, young Lee, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you so much, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Head Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.